This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS professor and psychologist Alzak Amlani discusses how to listen to and develop the soul. The talk was recorded on September 20, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Um, welcome to all of you. Thank you for making time this evening to come here and to open yourself up to this topic of the soul, the nature of the soul, and how we as human beings can attune and listen more deeply to our inner nature through the soul. Really, the objective of my being here and uh, having this conversation with you uh, is really to um, share some things about what I know from what I've learned uh, in various ways um, about the inner life and the soul and attunement um, and to inspire you to uh, go deeper in your own inquiry, in your own quest. And really, even today, while you sit here and as you take in um, these words and the energy that's created in the room and as you look more deeply <clears throat> that you have some sort of experience of your own inner being or of your own, of your own soul nature. Um, that's really, um, if that happens, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> I've definitely done my job then. So for me, um, the experience or the idea of the soul started very, very early, actually, with uh, my grandparents, who very much believed in the idea that the purpose of life um, is to journey, is to know oneself um, as a being, as a soul, and that there is some cohesive self that continues from life to life, um, learning, exploring, and growing um, and that life experiences are set up for that purpose. So I drank the Kool-Aid very early in my life, and, and it was just sort of what I just believed, um, which then just led me to teachings and people and teachers that spoke that experience and spoke those teachings. Um, and one of my first teachers um, was Robert Johnson, who has written books, uh, a Jungian analyst, he, she, we, inner work, and other books. And he's a Jungian analyst who's now about 90 years old. And I met him at the Grace Cathedral um, in 1990, and he was sitting outside uh, before he was giving a talk that evening. And my friend... Um, and I just noticed him sitting there and he kind of gestured for us to uh, come to him and to connect with him to just sort of have some sort of conversation before he went into the hall to give his talk. And we were chatting and then he showed us a ring he was wearing, which was um, a star with intersecting points. 
and he um, pointed to the intersection, and he said, "This is this intersection of the horizontal and the vertical is um, what life is about. It's about the opposites coming together: um, heaven and earth, masculine, feminine, inner, outer, pain and joy." And so on and so forth. And that the purpose of spiritual practice isn't just transcendence. And the purpose of human life isn't only to be in the world, but to actually for those two to meet. And that's the cross that we bear, is, um, is holding those opposites of what it really means to be spirit in human body. And the challenges of that. So he really set up a framework that um, is very compelling and very challenging, as we all know. Um, and so for me, um, that was really powerful also, because prior to that, I was practicing different kinds of yoga meditation. And the focus of that tradition um, and the, some of the teachers that I was learning from was more transcendence was more about reaching certain states of consciousness and trying to stay there as much as you can. Um, and the world was illusion, and the world was to be transcended, and so on. And um, my, my mentor, uh, Robert Johnson, became, ultimately became my mentor and, and a sort of teacher, really helped me appreciate that every experience that we have um, has a purpose. And the Jungians talk about synchronicities, uh, meaningful coincidences, and how we can uh, read uh, our soul's journey through what Robert calls slender threads, these, these meaningful, slender experiences and people and so on that come to us to help us sort of guide ourselves through um, the forest of the world and the forest of our lives that we live in. And so he was really talking about um, the soul, you know. And so the Sufis, um, you know, very directly talk about the soul. And one of the teachers that's helped me understand that is um, Almas, Hamid Ali Almas, who is one of the founders of the Diamond Approach, and also Karen Johnson, two teachers that I've studied with for many years now. Um, and so they talk about the soul um, as a vessel, as a container, um, as a journeyer through life experiences. And the soul is connected to divine qualities of compassion or love or joy or strength or clarity or wisdom and numerous other um, aspects, what they call the essential aspects. And the soul is also... Um, is impressed by or conditioned by all of our experiences with family, um, early life, culture, conditioning, um, the bodies we live in, um, our age, our generation, all the different experiences that we have, our trauma, our triumphs, our victories, and so on. That all those experiences land and make some sort of impression upon the soul. So it's kind of this two-sided um, entity or being that we are. Um, so we're profoundly resourced. It, that's part of the purpose of doing spiritual practice is it resources us and connects us back with our true nature. And we develop capacities and skills to look at 
our life experiences that we've had to then uh, metabolize and mature through those experiences. So this whole idea of actually taking the threads of our lives, the experiences that we've had, the identities that we've developed, at times even feel trapped in, um, that we develop some capacity, some spaciousness, um, some sort of perceptive abilities, and different traditions have different methods to do this. One method that I've learned through the Diamond Approach as a student is a method of inquiry, where you ask specific questions and um, about the nature of your own experience, of life, of our conditioning, and of the divine. And through asking those questions and exploring with what's arising in the moment, feelings, sensations, thoughts, ideas, memories, as well as states of consciousness that open up as we look, as we illuminate our experience, different states of consciousness arise spontaneously. And there is a trusting of that arising and a making a space of that. So it isn't a linear thing that you're moving towards a particular experience or towards a particular goal. It's more like a spiral and a labyrinth where you, where you start, you could just start with your experience in the moment. And that could lead you to what it was like to be a five-year-old child. Or it could lead you into this just place of spacious silence where you just behold something that you cannot speak or name and anything and everything in between. Um, so that is one method that I've learned and that I utilize for um, both opening up um, different aspects of myself as well as this whole idea of metabolizing. So I want to say some things about metabolizing because that's, I think that's really critical. Um, I'm a transpersonal uh, psychotherapist, so... Um, I take time to listen to people's stories. Um, and people's stories and people's experiences are important on the spiritual journey. They're not to be bypassed or, or just named as stories. Even though there are times we can get stuck in our story and it's nice to just recognize that I'm just kind of repeating something over and over again. And uh, I need to maybe let it go or transcend it or to open up to a different state. But rather when we explore our experiences with mindfulness and with the objective of understanding our experience, <clears throat> um, our, our life stories, our traumas, our memories, um, all of the aspects and the, and the, um, the life experiences that we've had begin to have some meaning begin to get digested um, and find a place in our own soul. And through that, um, what we've experienced begins to have more meaning and creates a more individual whole being. And we could say that is the purpose of the human journey. The human journey isn't only about realizing numinous states of consciousness. We could say maybe 
when before we were born, we already had access to that much more than we do now in form. So there's some meaning in being trapped in form, you know, and developing a relationship with all of our identities and all of our experiences <clears throat> is a valuable thing. So by processing with the support of these divine qualities of compassion, of love, of clarity, of presence, um, we begin to individuate what Carl Jung calls individuation, which is that we connect our soul nature with our personal life story. And a unique being emerges out of that experience, what Carl Jung called sort of the wholeness-making process that I really learned about through Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst. And in the Diamond Approach, they talk about that as the pearl. <clears throat> and I'll share with you a quote from Almas about that that really explains um, this idea of wholeness. The pearl develops as experience is digested. At the same time, the more developed it is, the more experience can be digested without the need to form the defensive, rigid structures of the ego. In a sense, the ego and the pearl are parallel developments, one inauthentic and one authentic, rather than strictly sequential steps. Ideally, as the ego develops, it is metabolized into the pearl. When, because of psychological barriers, the pearl's development is stunted, the ego develops without being integrated into being. Later, when the pearl is recovered, the old, not yet metabolized experiences and the psychological structures built around them must be integrated. Thus, the pearl grows and develops. So if we could have an image of our um, transformative, difficult, hard work, we, it would look a bit like a compost heap. You know, we'd be shedding a lot of layers <laughs> and um, a lot of our old stuff would be transforming into fertile ground for new seeds to grow and new aspects of us to come into form. So everything matters, everything has a place. And one of the key things, it's really a, a kind of a feminine process, really, the way I think of it. Um, and many traditions, including um, the Diamond Approach, talk about the soul as she, as feminine. And because really it's a path of relatedness, it's, it's a path of leaning into, and it's a path of moving towards. Um, because a lot of what we do through our conditioned experience and through various um, uh, expectations from family and society is we actually disavow, we actually repress, cut off, split off, project many aspects of us. <clears throat> um, and so we are unresourced, you know, we're disconnected and we're fragmented much of the time. And then often we try to transcend that suffering and that emptiness 
by trying to reach for higher states and just have more experience and more experience of blissful states or open states or free states. But then, then we come back to a kind of a split-off, fragmented self. And so in this approach, what we're saying is that we then need to meet what is traumatized, what is looking to come home um, to make, to create this, this pearl or to become more whole. So it's this constant relationship. So how can we come into relationship with our shadow, with aspects of us that we don't like, aspects of us that were shamed? Um, and Robert Johnson also talked about the golden shadow, you know, um, our treasures that were not seen, uh, the beauty that was not seen and not mirrored given our family experiences or a materialistic culture that we live in or the trauma that we've had or the racism that you've experienced or the homophobia you've experienced or any of the isms and obias where it's unsafe to be your full self, where you cut off different parts of yourself. So, <clears throat> um, so for me, uh, also one of the things that happened in 1996 was um, I went back, I went back to India where my family is originally from, northwestern India, Gujarat. And um, I was not born there, I was born in Uganda, East Africa, where my grandparents migrated in the early 1900s um, from northwestern um, India across the Indian Ocean into uh, East Africa and then ultimately settled in Uganda. And I was born um, uh, at a time where there was a lot of political upheaval and so on. <clears throat> um, so after coming here, um, in order to assimilate and to be American, you know, there was a, a kind of disavowing um, uh, of my own identity as an Indian person as well. And even some shame around um, my language skills and my uh, Indian um, features and uh, when my mother wore a sari and all of that was just like uncomfortable to be an American, you know, what I was just internalizing. Um, and it took going to India for me to really um, appreciate the depth of the culture, you know, and to really reclaim my Indian heritage and it felt like, um, and I went with Robert Johnson, who'd been there for like 17 years in a row. And he said, it feels like you've just been like drinking, just your being here in India, you've been drinking from this well. And there's an aliveness and a fullness that I've never seen in you before, you know. So I felt like something really profound got restored for me in being there. And it was a soulful experience. Um, as well as um, the synchronicities that happened where I went to the town where my grandmother um, died at a young age and was buried and I went to the cemetery where she was buried and something about being there um, and, and finding it and meeting people, meeting a man who was probably in his 80s at the time who actually remembered my grandfather and remembered my um, dad and my uncles as they were very young children and, and started telling me stories about what he remembered, you know. 
Um, and this happened in two or three different towns with the elders in those towns. And it was like these synchronicities and these amazing experiences that was restoring to my soul because it was like parts of my history, my heritage I discovered and that helped me feel my own pride, feel my own roots um, and fed me at a level that no spiritual experience really could. Um, so I share that to uh, support you in um, recognizing the importance of one's own heritage and all the layers and all the, the difficulty in really claiming that um, and the value of that. Um, so Rumi has um, a really uh, wonderful poem that uh, sort of speaks to this experience of holding opposites and this experience of, um, of being worked on <clears throat> that life does. He says, this is translated by Coleman Barks, a chickpea leaps almost over the rim of the pot where it's being boiled. Why are you doing this to me? The cook knocks it down with the ladle. Don't you try to jump out. You think I'm torturing you. I'm giving you flavor so you can mix with spices and rice and be the lovely vitality of human being. Remember when you drank rain in the garden? That was for this. So I think that really, you know, in a very powerful way speaks to um, maybe the purpose of even having access to divine nourishment, that that nourishment isn't only about our pleasure um, or to expand our consciousness, which is all wonderful, but it's also to give us the strength to be with the suffering, to be in that alchemical vessel where we get cooked and burned. And through that transformation, we offer nourishment. We mix uh, with these spices and, and the rice and that we actually become nourishment for the world. Um, and we could say that that is part of the purpose of life and holding all of our experiences as sacred uh, gives us <clears throat> um, a vessel and, and an inner space that allows for that transformation of our experiences to happen um, where we don't get stuck in resistance as much or our armoring, we allow our armoring to break and our defensive structures to be challenged um, and we feel a certain kind of holding. So the nature of the soul has a holding quality. It has the capacity to lean in and to be with suffering in a way that ego cannot be, in a way that the ego actually gets destroyed or resists or puts up armoring. So there's a softness that the soul has uh, and the malleability of the soul. Um, in the Diamond Approach, they talk about the soul as water um, because you know water is fluid and can take many different shapes. And it can be pure, clear water, and it can also get contaminated but it never really loses its essence as H2O. Um, so that's one symbol of the soul as well. So Alma says that our soul is a living organism of consciousness. It has a dynamism inherent to it and a dynamic force that powers it. 
The soul is a presence that is continually moving and changing. It cannot be static. The dynamic force underlying this constant change possesses an evolutionary bent, an optimizing property. So many teachers have talked about this, and Jung talks about this too, and a lot of Rumi's poems are about this, this, this movement, this seeking, this natural movement that our soul has towards more, greater, deeper wholeness, um, transcendence, transcendence of our mundaneness into something that is more sacred, more meaningful, that essentially the work is um, getting out of the way. A lot of the work is getting out of the way. Um, and seeing the structures that actually occlude and obstruct that clarity and that presence and that truth. And, um, and by seeing them and looking at them in various ways, the illumination, um, the light, the presence begins to become more of our natural experience. And so for me, over the years, it's like my stuff, all my stuff um, <laughs> that we all accumulate over the years, um, instead of it being so locked in my body and in my, in my emotional body, where it feels like it's just so in me and I'm so identified with it, um, is sort of floating around here now, you know? It's, it's, it, there's more space, there's more movement, and there's just more of a free being that is able to witness it. Um, and, and that uh, uh, it's just interesting how um, over the years that has slowly just uh, shifted in that way. <clears throat> so the soul inherently moves, tends to move. Um, so this optimizing property inherently tends to move the soul towards more optimal experiences and life. It brings in more life, more energy, and more light. It is an organic, non-mechanical force that evolves and optimizes our experience. And it empowers our soul to develop and unfold, not in isolation, but in relationship and in response to what is going on in our life. In that sense, it is a conscious force, aware and an intelligent force. So another piece of this I think that's really important is that it is in response to what is going on in our lives. So the starting point is really where we are, you know, um, and starting with what's true for us. Where are we stuck? What is our aspiration? Um, what is currently going on in our lives that is seeking meaning and that's calling us to look more deeply. And um, through that thread, um, through that invitation, we then begin to unpack deeper layers. Um, and the approach is a sort of an open-ended approach, you know, to see where that takes us. We don't really know what our journey is ultimately about. So the other aspect of this work is really the honoring of the mystery and building some tolerance and some acceptance and curiosity of the unknown and sitting with not knowing. 
which in a culture <laughs> that is so much about knowing, <laughs> uh, so much about uh, identifying and labeling and uh, building a kind of ego structure around that and our valuing of ourself around that, that, that really hits up against um, that kind of identity and that kind of goal. So to walk into not knowing, to move through confusion, um, and to find a thread of meaning through that, uh, and some light and some truth through that, is also a significant part of the journey. And many Christian mystics, uh, particularly um, St. John of the Cross, really talks about this in The Dark Night of the Soul, um, where... Um, going through the darkness, going through the confusion, going through the isolation and the loneliness um, is, is a profound part of the journey. And some of you have read Rilke's words on living into the mystery and living into not knowing. So I'd like to share some of Rilke's words here. Be patient towards all that is unsolved in your heart. And try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to find them. You would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. And so he's saying something similar, really, is uh, about really engaging with our questions, engaging with our life experience in a very direct and intimate kind of way. Um, and there's a knowing that happens through that um, that supports a maturation of the soul um, that actually leads to wisdom. Um, and that's a very different knowing than, than knowing through literature or uh, memorization or studying scripture um, that until the personal self is engaged and really living our truths, living our insights, um, we're still just accumulating a lot of information. So how do we listen and what are the ways of attunement? You know, there are many, many paths and many ways that are all about reconnecting with our inner nature. And there are so many languages to, um, to hearing, you know, our truths and the insights and um, the, the, the small messages that arise in us. And um, for many of us, just sitting still in nature is a powerful experience because there's something intact, um, the, the interconnectedness, the interdependence of nature uh, connects us with the web of life. And there's a certain kind of harmony in nature that many of us connect with um, that's very powerful. Jean Shinoda Bolin, the Jungian analyst who comes and teaches here once in a while, has written a wonderful book called Like a Tree, how trees, women, and tree people can save the planet. And I use some of her material in, in a couple of my classes. And she says, In the shelter and quiet of a tree that is a special place for a child or an adult, 
trees provide a sacred space or sanctuary. Under the canopy of branches and leaves, sunlight diffuses into dapples, provides shade when the sun is high and hot, and is an umbrella from the rain. In the shelter of a tree, we are aware of what is above us. In my mind's eye, I'm also now aware of an invisible branching root system under the visible tree, which spreads downward and outward in the earth, like a nest under us. We are cradled under trees. We sit under a tree and lose track of time. We enter a soulful space in ourselves, induced by just being there. Fertile ideas can grow when there is time and space to brood on them. The brooding space serves, <clears throat> serves as an incubator for insights and images. Might this have been why the Buddha became enlightened under a tree? And I just, I just love that because um, I'm sure many of you do and can relate to the experience of sitting underneath a tree. And I um, grew up um, where we had a lot of mango trees. And my brother and I would spend literally hours just sitting in the mango tree and picking mangoes and just kind of being there. Um, and then it was really interesting when we moved to the States, a really good friend of mine who grew up in Santa Monica um, had a couple of orange trees in his backyard. <laughs> and we found ourselves sitting in his orange tree for hours at a time picking oranges and just kind of just being. And so there's something about this kind of being space in nature that is so powerful and so nourishing um, and the alignment that happens through that. Um, and so part of what we'll do this evening, uh, a little bit of an experiential exercise, will be around ways that you listen uh, to your soul. What are the languages that speak to you? You know, because the nature of the soul is it's uh, she's hidden. Um, Carl Jung uh, sort of talked about the deer as a symbol of the soul. You know, there's a there's a timidity to the soul in a certain way, as powerful as she is, um, that we really have to create a safe space, that we really have to invite the soul in um, and and really make a sacred space within our hearts sometimes within our home. And um, how are we keeping our home? Is our home a place that reflects soul? You know, um, sacred objects. Um, do we clean our home in a way that feels, has the freshness, has the vitality, um, that, that has an aliveness to it? Um, where we naturally feel something sacred is being mirrored for us. So we enter a home, we feel secure, we feel ourselves there, um, and it drops us into a safer, more sacred kind of a space. So part of what today's talk and inquiry is about is um, where do we want to experience more of this sacredness, more of our soul nature, you all have some taste of that. Um, you all want more of that. That's why you're here. <laughs> um, and where is it occurring and where is it not occurring? 
Um, and what are the distractions? We have we live in a world of a tremendous amount of distraction, you know. Um, and uh, we can even say capitalism feeds on distraction, you know, and grows grows on that. Um, and you know that that time of stillness and beingness is being compromised more and more. So, what can we do to safeguard? that inner experience and allow it to grow is part of our conversation and our inquiry today. <clears throat> um, and poetry uh, and simple words that really point to something uh, that feels numinous, that has a quality of, of taking us into a different state that makes us want to be with ourselves and each other and the world at another level. Um, so we have many ways, art, um, taking a walk, um, being still, sitting, um, really hearing somebody at a deeper level than we've heard before, noticing what our critic is doing and being able to find a way to have our critic take a break and create a space of openness and acceptance that just allows wherever we are to be there. And when somebody does that for us, what a powerful experience that is when we feel like we've been deeply heard without judgment, without advice, um, without any kind of projection, but just a space where we're, we're seen and heard for wherever we are. And something just happens in that kind of space that, <clears throat> that unifies us, that, um, that reconnects us to uh, maybe the flow that doesn't necessarily solve our problems, but gives meaning to them. I'd like to share something from the Red Book by Carl Jung. He says, I am stunned, but I want to be stunned, since I have sworn to you, my soul, to trust you even if you lead me through madness. Help me so that I do not choke on my own knowledge. So James Hillman says, Soul makes all meaning possible, turns events into experiences, involves a deepening of experience, is communicated in love, and has a special relationship with death. And I think the death piece is really important. The Buddhists, the Tibetan Buddhists speak about it very, very openly. I mean, some of the monks literally drink water out of a skull to remind themselves of, you know, this is where we're all going to end up one day. Um, in the Christians, um, the organizing principle, death is an organizing principle in, in Christianity and Christian mysticism. And so that recognition of death, I think, is very important um, in soulful living because that makes everything more sacred because we recognize the impermanence and the loss um, of the, the loss that is coming, the ending that is coming. And actually every moment is changing and no moment is repeated ever again. So um, 
there's something so powerful and poignant and so um, immediate. It brings us into an immediacy when we can really touch that. Um, so I just wanted to just bring that in. And in terms of practice, um, that 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 unless we're we're way, well along on our journeys, where realization just unfolds, um, just by walking down the street and having conversations and brushing your teeth and looking at your colorful salad and you're just in awe of the beauty of the vegetables and everything you're eating, unless you're just in that state. And if somebody insults you or, you know, almost crashes into you on the freeway, you can just send them blessings and slow down and make room for them. Most of us aren't quite in that state. So I'd like to just end with a poem called This Unlit Light by Mark Nepo. Having loved enough and lost enough, I'm no longer searching just opening. No longer trying to make sense of pain, but trying to be a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. These are the irritations that rub into a pearl. So we can talk for a while, but then we must listen. The way rocks listen to the sea. And we can churn all that goes wrong, but then we must lay the distractions down and water every living seed. And yes, on nights like tonight, I too feel alone. But seldom do I face it squarely enough to see that it's a door into the endless breath that has no breather, into the surf that shells call God or goddess. been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. The audio engineer for this episode was Ramdas Khalsa. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcasts.